And would you turn your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 2 this morning. And as you turn there, stand with me as we read together Romans chapter 2. We're continuing in our study of the book of Romans. We began just a few weeks ago, the week after Easter. Our study is called If God is for Us. And um, we're wrapping up chapter 2 today. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. And get ready for the word circumcision, because it's about to hit you 40 times. <laughs> for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your cir- circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For one who is a Jew, uh, for one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. So we're wrapping up chapter 2 of Romans today. Quick recap on where we are uh, and where we've been up to this point. Up to this point, Paul has introduced himself to the church in Rome. This book is called Romans, but Paul is not just writing to Romans in general. He is writing specifically to the church in Rome, and contained within the church in Rome are both Jews and Gentiles. It's the common belief that the church in Rome was probably started by Jewish converts who had possibly picked up the gospel in Jerusalem and had brought it back and instituted the church. However, very quickly, non-Jews who are known as Gentiles had become a part of the church in Rome and had become a significant part of the church. So Paul is, is kind of, as we've said, an unknown commodity to this group of people. Maybe they've heard his name, but really they probably don't know much about him. And so he is introducing himself, and by way of introduction, What he says is that he is unashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to save all who believe. So he declares the power of the gospel, but then he immediately turns and and starts talking about why we need the gospel. And the answer is we need the gospel because our sin is complete and total and just rampant. He says that God has given mankind over to his sin and that our sin deeply penetrates us. And as we pick up today, he has turned his focus from just like the sin of all people in general to very specifically the Jews and the sin of the Jews. And Paul was a Jew, as, as most of you remember. He's zeroing in on them specifically. Um, and as we're looking at today's text, um, there's this phrase that continually pops up throughout Paul's writing, and it's this phrase, God shows no partiality. So one of the common beliefs among some of the Jews at this point in time was that if they were to come before the Lord on the day of judgment, that they would be saved, not really because of anything Christ has done, but purely because of the fact that they were Jews. So their belief was because of their ethnic heritage that God would look at them and ultimately declare them justified before him. And and so last week, we started looking at two reasons why the Jews potentially believed this, and Paul makes two arguments against 
each of these two things. So last week, as we started looking at this, we, we looked at the first reason, which was that they possessed the law of Moses itself. So one of the reasons why Jews who were Christians, Jewish Christians living in Rome, one of the reasons that they might say that they would just be saved on the day of judgment was because they possessed the law of Moses, that God had handed down the law to them through their forefathers, that they were the ones who had it and that the Gentiles did not have it. And so we examined that last week. Paul's point of view was this. What does it matter? What does it matter if you possess the law? What does it matter if you know the law if you don't do it, right? He says when God looks at you, he's not going to be asking, do they have the law or have they heard the law or do they possess the law? What he's going to be asking is, are they obedient to the law? He says that's what people are going to be judged on is their obedience to the word of God, not just their knowledge of the word of God, but whether or not they do it. The second argument we see today, which was that they would be saved because they possessed circumcision. And if I can be real honest, I think circumcision is one of the strangest things in the entire Bible. Like it really, when you kind of pull back and examine what it is, I mean, it's just bizarre. Uh, Last night, Aubrey, our our nine-year-old asked, Dad, what are you preaching on today? And I said, circumcision. And she said, what's that? And so Lindsay told her, and I don't think she's ever going to ask us a question about anything ever again, right? So score one for us. Um, There was this common belief that because we possess this mark, because we've been set apart as God's people, and, and not just in kind of a kind of an, like a ethereal way, but in this like very like very physical way, we have been set apart. That if we were to become come before the Lord on the day of judgment, He would declare us righteous. And as we begin to look at this, this might seem like a strange practice to us. But it's also not a stretch to see why the Jews would have thought what they thought. Um, It's possible your tendency, because I assume you're not Jewish, is to maybe look at this in the way that an anthropologist would look at it. That that we're kind of looking back historically and we're kind of examining how this culture went about doing things. What was their history? What were their practices? How did they go about these rituals? In other words, I think many of us engage with this as something that's sort of outside of us, that the the circumcision piece doesn't really have a lot to do with us. It it is like a thoroughly Jewish thing, and, and it's maybe interesting to consider in terms of its like historical implications, but ultimately I think many of us kind of see it as just not having a lot of bearing on us. And I actually want to suggest to us today that I actually think that this has a lot of bearing on us, that this is actually something that is incredibly significant, and and that it has bearing on our lives in maybe a way that we don't think. And not just for guys, but for men and women. And, And to help us see that, what I want us to do is turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians, another letter that Paul wrote, Colossians chapter 2. And in Colossians chapter 2, Paul is writing primarily to Gentiles. Remember we said in Romans he's writing to both Jews and Gentiles. Here in chapter 2, he's zeroing in on the Jews. But in Colossians, he's writing to a group of Gentile Christians who were wrestling with all of the implications of the Jewish faith for their Christianity. Because many people were trying to impose the rituals, the holidays, the practices of the Jewish faith 
on them. And um, as we've said before, that kind of makes sense. Jesus was the Messiah to the Jews, right? He was the King of the Jews, right? He, he was the new David who had been like the greatest King of the Jews ever. So there are all of these Jewish implications surrounding Jesus and his ministry, and yet the gospel that he brings is a gospel that is not just for Jews. It is a gospel that is for all people. So Jesus doesn't desire to simply be the king of the Jews. Jesus desires to be the king of all humanity. So Paul, in addressing these Gentile believers in Colossians, says this to them. Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Wait a second. Paul's just said something huge, especially if you're a Jew hearing this. He's telling a group of Gentiles, even though you have not been physically circumcised, somehow you have been circumcised. And he says the circumcision that you've experienced is a circumcision that happens somehow without hands. Let's read on. He says, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And there, guys, there's so much here, but quick 30,000-foot view. Gentiles, that's us, if you have faith in Christ, even if you are physically uncircumcised, even if you don't have the law of Moses, because of the cross of Christ, God views you as one who both bears the mark of God and as one who has been declared righteous with regards to the law. So Christ, through his work on the cross, offers to all people something that they did not previously have, right? Which is the opportunity to be justified before God and to be marked as God's people. And notice what Paul says. He says the sign of all of this is not a physical circumcision in the way that it had been for the Jews. He says the sign of all of this is baptism. This is back up in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Remember the words of Jesus at the Last Supper as he took the cup he said, this cup represents my blood, which is ultimately constituting a new covenant. This new covenant is in fulfillment of the old covenant. The old covenant being the covenant God made with Abraham. The covenant that was all about the law and circumcision. I mean, circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham. 
This is the thing God commanded Abraham to do, not only to himself, but to every male in his household, and then ultimately to every boy born into the nation of Israel. This was what was, what was to happen. But we, we come all the way here, and we see that Jesus is instituting a new covenant. He's not abolishing the old. He's bringing it to its natural place of fruition. He's instituting a new covenant through his sacrifice, through the cross itself, through his body and his blood. And in this new covenant, there is a circumcision, but the circumcision is something like baptism. And it's something like the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within your life. The old, the old covenant was all about the, the letter of the law. It was all about the actual flesh. The new covenant is all about Christ and the work of the cross, the breaking of his body, not yours, the shedding of his blood, not yours, is what makes it real and effectual. So Paul's view is that in this new covenant, the sign is no longer really circumcision. It's things like baptism. It's things like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life. And, and here's where this hopefully comes into view for us, especially here in Shreveport, where we live in a strong Christian culture and, and where there's also a strong like Roman Catholic culture. Here, here's the deal. Our tendency is much like the tendency that the Jews had during Paul's day, because our tendency is to want to put our hope in physical things rather than putting our hope in the completed work of Christ. So you start talking about us, we may not be putting our hope in things like circumcision or the law of Moses, but we are potentially putting our hope in things like the fact that we've been baptized. We are potentially putting our hope in, the th in things like, well, I, I'm a member of a church or I attend church regularly or I serve the church in some way. It's really no different from the Jews. They simply thought, hey, on the day of judgment, when I come before the Lord, surely the fact that I'm circumcised is going to count for something when I come before him. And I think there are many people, maybe in this room this morning, but certainly here in our city, there are many of us who think, you know, on that day of judgment, when I come before the Lord, Surely the fact that I got baptized is going to matter, right? Or, or surely the fact that I took my kids to church is going to matter. Or, or surely the fact that I served in this way or that way, or that I, I gave money to the homeless, or that I did this or that, surely that's going to somehow matter when it comes to my justification, my, me being made right before God. And what Paul says is you could not be more wrong. God shows no partiality, right? There's no group of people that are going to come before him on the day of judgment. The day when Paul said, last week we saw, the day when he will like flay you open and he will discover the secrets that are deep inside you. He will show no partiality in the sense that when he looks at the secrets that are deep inside of you, that he will go, but it's cool because you got dunked in some water. Or it's fine because you went through the ritual of being circumcised. Or it's fine because you, you've tried really hard to be a good person or a kind person to other people. Now, listen, all of those are good and beautiful things. But our participation in those events, in those practices, in those rituals can in no way save us. Instead, they are things that should come out of our salvation. Right? We talk about abiding in the vine and all of Jesus' talk about abiding in the vine, 
And, and here's, here's what happens when we abide in the vine. There's fruit that comes from that. Things like baptism, things like being heavily engaged with our, with our faith community, raising our kids in the gospel, right? Serving others around us, helping others around us. But let's not get those things mixed up, right? Because if our hope is in what I've done and not primarily in what Christ has done, then we run a great risk. There are many people out there that would give lip service to Jesus, but at the end of the day, the hope is in our own action. And the Bible has a word for people like that, and it's the word lost. Jesus talks about the day of judgment. He says on the day of judgment, he's going to bring the nations before him, and there are going to be those who say, Lord, didn't we do all of this stuff for you in your name? Didn't I do this, and didn't I do that, and didn't I do this? And as we've said before, if your response before the judgment seat of God is ever, hey, let me tell you about the good stuff I've done, then you have missed it, right? Because this is about Christ and his completed work. So this is Paul's big concern with the Jews, is that you are putting way more hope, way more credence in things like circumcision, the law, the rituals, the holidays, the celebrations. You're putting way more faith in that stuff than you are in the fact that our Messiah has come and died and risen from the dead. And so for us guys, here's what I wonder. What does this mean for our community today? What does this mean for our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our family members who have some kind of semblance of religiosity in their life, but yet their hope is not primarily in Christ? Right? Who who if they were to come before the judgment seat of God today would say, "Well, didn't I do this? Right? Didn't I go on that mission trip?" Right? Didn't I give money to this organization or that church? Or, remember when I taught Sunday school? Like that was a, that was a sacrifice. Like we know people, and, and there might be people here in this room this morning who, who that would be your MO. Like that would be your go-to. And so my, my goal this morning is that we would take just a moment to kind of examine our hearts. You know, man, is my hope in the work of Christ? It, it, have I received a gift that I could never pay for? that I could never afford? And is, is that gift actually transforming me? Not, not only just for one day down the road when I die, but, but right now as well? Like, have I been made right before a holy God, and is he now sanctifying me? Is he conforming me to the image of Christ? Am I becoming more and more like Christ, not because I'm trying to earn my salvation, but because I'm abiding, because I have been saved by God? Does that make sense? This, this is tricky, and I think our own flesh, but also the enemy, wants to trip us up in this stuff. Because when things are right in front of us, when there's actually physical actions we can take, they seem more real than a God who is often invisible and inaudible to us. And so our natural, because we're sinful people, our natural tendency is to want to put our hope in those things ahead of him. As we live in this Christian-y culture, this religious-y culture, we live in the midst of a people who are perhaps inclined to believe, just like the Jews, that they will be saved because of what they have done and not primarily because of what Christ has done. And so this morning, let us take just a moment in reflection. I want us to examine our own hearts, as I said. And, and so let's take a moment right now, if you would bow with me. Let me ask this question, is this you in any way? Where are the areas of your heart where your tendency is to want to trust yourself rather than Jesus? 
Would you just confess those things to him this morning? Is your tendency towards more of a works-based gospel? If so, I want to pray that you would have a fresh experience with God's Spirit today. That He would free you from those things. Let us also take a moment and pray for our neighbors. You, you know people. That struggle with this. Where Christianity, faith in Christ is something they put on and take off. It's my Sunday clothes, right? Would you pray that the gospel would impact their lives and that God would use you and our faith community to share the truth of Christ with them? Even though many of them have heard the gospel audibly, let us pray together that their ears and their minds would be open to it spiritually, that God would truly awaken them. Allow me to pray the same thing for us this morning as well, that we would not be distracted, that we would continue to abide. And if you are not, that you would allow his spirit, his kindness to lead you to repentance. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy. We thank you for the ways that your goodness has been shown to us through the cross of Christ. And Father, we pray this morning that you would forgive us for the times that we have come to believe that we could in any way be reconciled to you through our own work. Father, we pray that you would give us guidance and wisdom as we serve those around us, as we respond to their needs, as we share the gospel with them in word and deed, would you give us the right words? Would you show us how we might love other people in the way that you have loved us? And Father, we pray you would add to our number those who are being saved. In this city where it can seem as if everybody is a Christian, or as if everybody goes to church. Father, we know that that isn't true. We pray you would draw people to you through your spirit, and that you would save them by your power. Help us to be ambassadors for Christ, agents of reconciliation as we go into our everyday. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray.